14. In. Noon. And evening editions. They think they had a special call to speak. Without knowledge of things that have transpired before. Without knowledge of the persons concerned. Without a suspicion of the needs of the situation and its possibilities. They judge the peoples of the earth and divide the world. Stupid talk. With which irreverent officiousness seeks to a while away and shorten the period of anxious waiting for customers but to prepare quietly and wisely and mightily in advance for terms of peace. That is the duty of the statesman. We are waging this war not in order to punish those who have sinned, nor in order to free enslaved peoples and thereafter to comfort ourselves with the unselfish and useless consciousness of our own righteousness. We wage it from the lofty point of view and with the conviction that Germany, as a result of her achievements and in proportion to them, is justified in asking, and must obtain, wider room on earth for development and for working out the possibilities that are in her. The powers from whom she forced her ascendancy, in spite of themselves, still live, and some of them have recovered from the weakening she gave them. Spain and the Netherlands, Rome and Habsburg, France and England, possessed and settled and ruled great stretches of the most fruitful soil. Now strikes the hour for Germany's rising power. The terms of a peace treaty that does not ensure this would leave the great effort unrewarded. Even if it brought dozens of shining billions into the national treasury, the fate of Europe would be dependent upon the United States of America. We are waging war for ourselves alone, and still we are convinced that all who desire the good would soon be able to rejoice in the result. For with this war there must also end the politics that have frightened away all the upright from entering into intimate relations with the most powerful continental empire. We need land, free roads into the ocean and for the spirit and language and wares and trade of Germany we need the same values that are accorded such goods anywhere else. Only four persons not residents of Essen knew about the new mortar which the firm of Friedrich Krupp manufactured at its own expense and which later, because its shell rapidly smashed the strongest fortifications of reinforced concrete, our military authorities promptly acquired. Must we be ashamed of this instrument of destruction and take from the lips of the cultured world the wry reproach that from Faust and the Ninth Symphony we have sunk our national pride to the 42 centimeter guns? No, only firm will and determination to achieve, that is to say, German power, distinguishes the host of warriors now embattled on the five huge fields of blood from the race of the poets and thinkers, their brains, too, yearn back, throbbing for the realm of the muses before the remains of the Netherland Gothic, before the wonders of Flemish painting, their eyes light up in pious adoration, from the lips of the troops that marched from three streets into the parade plaza in Brussels there burst, when the last man stood in the ranks and burst spontaneously a German song, out of all the trenches joyous cheers of thanks rise for the fearless music Mr. Who, amid the raging fire, through horns and trumpets, wrapped in earth-colored gray, leads his band in blowing marshes and battle songs and songs of dancing into the ears of the Frenchmen, hearkening with pleasure, not only for the territories that are to feed their children and grandchildren as this warrior host battling, but also for the conquering triumph of the German genius, for the forces of sentiment that rise from good and Beethoven and Bismarck and Schiller and Kant and Kleist, working on throughout time and eternity, and never was there a war more just, never one the result of which could bring such happiness as must this, even for the conquered, in order that that spirit might conquer we were obliged to forge the mightiest weapons for it, over the meadows of the Skeltis wafted the word of the king, how proud I feel my heart flame when in every German land I find such a warrior band, for German land, the German sword, thus be the empire's strength preserved, this strength was begotten by that spirit, 
the fashioning of such weapons was possible only because millions of industrious persons, with untiring and unremitting labors, transformed the poorer Germany into the rich Germany, which was then able to prepare and conduct the war as a great industry, and what the spirit created once again serves the spirit, it shall not lay waste, nor banish us free men into slavery, but rather it shall call forth to the light of heaven a new, richer soul of life out of the ruins of a storm-tossed civilization, it shall, it must, it will conquer new provinces for the majesty of the noble German spirit Deutschheit that never will grow chill and numb, as the Roman did, otherwise and even though unnumbered billions flowed into the Rhine the expense of this war would be shamefully wasted, our army did not set out to conquer Belgian territory, in the war against four great powers, the west front of which alone stretched from the North Sea to the Alps, from Ghent almost to Geneva, it seemed impossible to achieve on Europe's soil a victory that would strengthen the roots of the conquering race. Gold cannot indemnify for the loss of this warming young life which we were obliged to mourn even after ten weeks of war, and if, amid ten thousand of the fine fellows who died, there was even a single creative mind, then thousands of millions could not pay for its destruction, and what stretch of land necessary for the German people, or full in the real sense of the word, could France or even Russia vacate for us in Europe? to be unassailable, to exchange the soul of a Viking for that of a New Yorker, that of the quick pike for that of the lazy carp whose fat back grows moss covered in a dangerous pond that must never become the wish of a German, and for the securing of more comfortable frontier protection only a madman would risk the life that is flourishing in power and wealth. Now we know what the war is for not for French, Polish, Ruthenian, Estonian, Lettish territories, nor for billions of money, not in order to dive headlong after the war into the pool of emotions and then allow the chilled body to rust in the twilight dusk of the deliverer of races. No. To hoist the storm flag of the empire on the narrow channel that opens and locks the road into the ocean. I could imagine Germany's warlord, if, after Ostend, Calais, too, is captured, sending the armies and fleets back home from the east and front the west, and quietly saying to our enemies, you now have felt what Germany's strength and determination can do, and hereafter you will probably weigh the matter well before you venture to attack us. Of you Germany demands nothing further, not even reimbursement for its expenses in this war for those it is reimbursed by the wholesale terror which it evoked all around in the autumn battles. Do you want anything of us? We shall never refuse a challenge to a quarrel. We shall remain in the Belgian Netherlands, to which we shall add the thin strip of coast up to the rear of Calais. You Frenchmen have enough better harbors. Anyway, we terminate, of our own accord, this war which, now that we have safeguarded our honor, can bring us no other gains, we now return to the joy of fruitful work, and will grasp the sword again only if you attempt to crowd us out of that which we have won with our blood, of a solemn peace conference, with haggling over terms, parchment, and seal, we have no need, the prisoners are to be freed. You can keep your fortresses if they do not seem to you to be worthless, if the rebuilding of them still seems worthwhile to you. Tomorrow is again a common day. Do not lapse into dreams about United States of Europe, about mild-intentioned division of the Coburg heritage, a bit of it to Holland, a bit to Luxembourg, perhaps even a bit to France. Anyone with even the slightest nobility of feeling would reject the proffered dish of poison with a gesture of disgust nor be lulled into delusions of military and tax conventions that would deprive the country of its free right of determining its own destiny. To the Belgians we are the arch-imp and the tenant of the pool of hell. We would remain so, 
even if every stone in Louvain and in Malines were replaced by its equivalent in gold, that rage can be overcome only after the race, praised by Schiller's fiery breath, sees its neighbors close at hand and draws advantage from intimate relations with them, and work not pent against, but working with Hamburg and Bremen, Liege, side by side with Essens, Berlin's, and Swabia's gun factories cockerel in combination with crude, iron, coal, woven stuff from old Germany and Belgium, introduced into the markets of the world by one and the same commercial spirit, our Cumberland and their Congo such a warm blaze of advantage has burned away many a hatred, the wise man wins as his friend the deadly foe whose skull he cannot split, and he will rather rule and allow to feast on exceptional dainties this still cold and shy new friend than lose potential well-wishers of incalculable future goodwill, only, never again a withered Reichsland, imperial territory, from Calais to Antwerp, Flanders, Limburg, Brabant, to behind the line of the Meuse forts, Prussian, German princes no longer haggle, German tribes no longer envy one another, the southern triangle with Alsace and Lorraine and Luxembourg, too, if it desires is to be an independent federated state, entrusted to a Catholic noble house, then Germany would know for what it shed its blood, we need land for our industries, a road into the ocean, an undivided colony, the assurance of a supply of raw materials and the most fertile wellspring of prosperity a people industrious and efficient in its work. Here they are, or and copper, glass and sugar, flax and wool. But here, too, there once lived Jan and Hubert van Eddick, Rubens, the reveler Eisbroek, and Jordines of the avid eyes. Here there always lived to be sure, in twilight Germania's little soul, fluttering imagination, and is there not here, too? that which all too stormily and, as a rule, in all too harsh a tone of abuse every German heart yearns for, a victory over England, on the sea such victory cannot be quickly won, indeed, can, indeed, never be won without great sacrifice, but with the German Empire, whose mortars loom threatening from one coast of the channel, whose flag floats over the two greatest harbors of Europe and over the Congo Basin England would have to come into a friendly agreement as a power of equal strength entitled to equal rights, if it is unwilling to do so, lion, leap, on our young soil we await thee, the day of adventure wanes, but for the German who dares and afraid to desire things the harvest labor of heroic warriors has quickly filled the storehouse, Eluvian's new streets by the Associated Press, London, March 9th, the decision of the municipal authorities of Louvain, Belgium, to give American names to certain streets of the city is set forth in a formal resolution of thanks which was adopted on Washington's birthday by the Burgomaster and Aldermen of Louvain and sent to the American Commission for Relief in Belgium. The resolution concludes as follows, the cradle of a university of five centuries standing, and today herself partly in ruins. The city of Louvain cannot fail to associate with the memory of Washington, one of the greatest captains. The name of the learned professor whose admirable precepts and high political attainments, as also his firmness of character and dignity of life, all contributed to carry him successively to the presidency of Princeton University, the governorship of New Jersey, and finally the presidency of the United States, in order to perpetuate to future generations remembrances of these sentiments and our ardent gratitude, the Burgomaster and Aldermen have decided this day that in the new parts of the city, as they rise out of the ruins, three streets or squares shall receive the illustrious names of President Wilson, Washington, and American Nation, the state of Holland in answer to H.G. Wells by Hendrik Willem Van Loon to the editor of the New York Times.
My attention has been drawn to an article by H.G. Wells, published by the New York Times and by Current History in its March number which proposed that Holland give Germany the coup de grace, suddenly attack A. and Cologne, cut off Germany's line of supplies, and thereby help win the war for the cause of justice. I am not writing this answer in any official capacity, but I have reason to believe that I write what most of my fellow countrymen feel upon the subject. Holland is neutral. The country is just as neutral as Belgium would have been had she not been invaded, as neutral as Denmark and Switzerland and the other small countries which are suffering so severely through this war. If any power should attack Holland, Holland would no longer be neutral, but would inundate the central part of the provinces of North and South Holland, would occupy the very strong position around Amsterdam, and would fight to the end, but unless attacked directly Holland will take no part in this war. Mr. Wells hints at the idea of the righteousness of the cause of the Allies. All races and all colors have been brought together to beat Germany. Now Holland ought to do the same. She is in a position to exercise great power with her fresh troops. In the name of humanity, which has been so grievously maltreated in Belgium, let her join. I think that the answer of the greater part of our people would be somewhat as follows. No quarrel was ever made by a single person. It takes two to start a fight. England and Germany are fighting for the supremacy of commerce. In the course of this quarrel Belgium has been sacrificed. We are extremely sorry. We have opened our frontiers to all of our southern neighbors. They were welcome to flee to us with all their belongings. We shall take care of them so long as they wish to stay. Our position is not always easy. The Dutch and the Belgian characters are very different. We do not always understand each other. But in the main the Belgians know that we shall share our food with them until the last. That in every way we shall make them as comfortable as we can. We are not a very graceful people. We often lack a certain charm of manner. The little potentates who are the mayors of our small frontier towns are not always very tactful. But these things are minor matters. Holland is the natural place of refuge for her southern neighbors. And as long as they suffer from the German domination they know that with us they are safe. But should we have gone with the Allies when the Belgians suffered through no fault of their own? For France there is in Holland the greatest personal sympathy. But she is far away from Holland. The direct issue is between England and Germany. The Hollander likes England. Fashions his life as much as possible after the English pattern. Prefers to do business with English people. Yet is there any reason why Holland should make the possible sacrifice of her own existence for the benefit of England? Will Mr. Wells kindly glance through his history and see what we as a nation have suffered at the hands of England? During three centuries we fought with England about a principle laid down by Groshies of Delft. We claimed that the sea was an open highway, free to all navigators. England used her best legal talent to prove the contrary. In the struggle we exhausted ourselves and we finally lost. Incidentally we saw our richest colonies go into the possession of England. The very colony in which I am writing this letter was taken from us in time of peace. Of course all this is past history and no Hollander is going to accuse an Englishman of acts committed by his great-grandfather. But the people will remember all those things, however vaguely, and they will distrust the nation that has constantly done them harm. We gave England her best kin. If one is to believe Mr. Macaulay, William I.I.I., in order to destroy the power of Louis Xivy, and greatly for the benefit of England incidentally, did the greatest harm to the country of his origin. After 1715, totally exhausted, we were obliged to see how England got ahead of us. Then there are some other small items. I take one at random. 
while the Duke of Wellington danced the polka in Brussels the Prince of Orange with a small Dutch army stopped Napoleon's progress at Quatre Bras, and by disobeying the orders of the British commander saved the army of the Allies and made the victory of Waterloo possible. Our thanks for this self-sacrifice was the mild abuse of Mr. Thackeray and other gentlemen who had ever since laughed at the clumsy Dutch troops who in truth so valiantly assisted the British and Prussians. In this matter a little more generosity on the part of British historians would have made us feel more cordial toward our English neighbors. It was ever thus. To read the story of the Armada one would believe that the English destroyed this dangerous Spanish fleet. As a matter of fact. Competent historians know that certainly one half of the glory for that feat goes to the Dutch sailors, who prevented the Spaniards from getting their supplies, their pilots, and their auxiliary army. These are merely examples. They are all small things, but there are so many of them. They return with such persistent regularity, that we would feel very little inclination to risk our national existence for a nation which, according to our feeling, rightly or wrongly, I am not debating that question has never treated us with fairness, and which we had to fight for over three centuries before it would accept those general principles of international law which first of all were laid down by Grotius in the beginning of the 17th century. Remember, however, that this does not mean any hostility to England. Mr. Wells undoubtedly knows that our ships have invariably done noble work in rescuing the victims of submarine attacks. He will know that our government to the great anger of Germany has construed the articles of several international treaties in the most liberal way and has immediately released all such British subjects as were thrown upon our coast through the accidents of war. He will also know, if he has read the papers, that our entire country has turned out to do homage to the bravery of those men. The danger to the sailor of a British man of war who lands in Holland is that he will be killed by a severe attack of nicotine poisoning caused by the cigars which the people in their desire to show their feelings and enable to break the strict law of neutrality, shower upon the Englishman who was fished out of the North Sea by our trawlers or our steamers, but away deep under this very strong personal sympathy for England, and with very sincere admiration for the British form of government, the people of Holland cannot easily overcome a feeling of vague distrust that the nation which in the past has so often abused them cannot entirely be counted upon to treat them justly this time. Incidentally, I may say that the bangling of Mr. Churchill in Antwerp, which we know much better than do the people of England, is another reason why we are a bit afraid of the island across the North Sea. We are indeed in the position of a dog that has often been beaten innocently and that is now smiled upon and asked to be good and attack another person who has never done him any harm. The comparison may not be very flattering to us, but Mr. Wells will understand what I mean. We have had the Germans with us always, personally taking them by and large, we like them not, their ways are not our ways, our indisciplined race and whores their system, we have seen the misery which they caused in Belgium more closely than anyone else, the endless letters and pamphlets with which the Germans have inundated our land to prove the justice of their cause have made no impression whatsoever, we have with our own eyes seen the victims of their very strict explanation of section 58, article I of the German military penal code, We have seen the Belgians hanging by their own red handkerchiefs, and we have with our own hands fed the multitude that had been deprived of everything. On the other hand, Germany has up to date been most scrupulous in her behavior toward us. In the past she has never done us any harm. We may not like her, but she has in a very careful way avoided all friction and has treated us with great consideration. In view of all this, in view of the very sober attitude of our people upon all matters of our daily life, 
in view of these historical reflections, which had a very decided influence, would it be quite fair without any provocation on the side of Germany to go forth and attack her in the back, now that she is in such very dangerous straits? I repeat that this may not be the exact sentiment of all of my countrymen, but I believe that very many of us feel things that way. Perhaps we disagree in minor details, but we agree about the main issue. We love our country. For centuries we have thought to maintain our individual civilization against the large neighbors who surround us. We try to live up to our good reputation as a home for all those who suffer. The people who are made homeless by Germany come to us and we try to feed them on such grain as the British government allows to pass through the channel. We try to continue in our duty toward all our neighbors, even when they declare the entire North Sea in which we also have a certain interest as a place of battle and blow up our ships with their mines. We patiently destroy the mines which swim away from our neighbors' territorial waters and land upon our shores. In short, we perform a very difficult act of balancing as well as we can. But it seems to us that under difficult circumstances we are following the only correct road which can lead to the ultimate goal which we wish to reach the lasting respect of all those who will judge us without prejudice and malice. It is very kind of Mr. Wells to offer us territorial compensation, but we respectfully decline such a reward for the sort of attack which was popular in the days of the old Machiavelli. Hendrik Willem Van Loon, New York, February 26, 1915 Hungary after the war by a correspondent of the London Times from the London Times. January 20, 1915. The Allied powers are agreed that the European resettlement must be inspired by the principle of nationality. It will be but just if Hungary suffers severely from its application. For during the past 40 years no European government has sinned so deeply and persistently against that principle as has her Magyar government. The old Hungary whose name and history are surrounded by the glamour of romance, was not the modern Magyarland. Its boasted constitutional liberties were, indeed, confined to the nobles, and the Hungarian people was composed, in the words of Verbalegi's tripartitum code, of prelates, barons, and other magnates, also all nobles, but not commoners. But the nobles of all Hungarian races rallied to the Hungarian banner, proud of the title of Sivis Hungaricus, John Hunyadi. The national hero, was a Rumain, Zrinai was a Croat, and many another paladin of Hungarian liberty was a non-Magyar. Latin was the common language of the educated, but with the substitution of Magyar for Latin during the 19th century, and with the growth of what is called the Magyar state idea, with its accompaniment of Magyar chauvinism, all positive recognition of the rights and individuality of non-Magyar races gradually vanished. The Magyar language itself is incapable of expressing the difference between Hungarian and Magyar. The difference is approximately the same as between British and English. The Magyar state set itself to Magyarize education and every feature of public life. Any protest was treated as incitement against the Magyar state idea and was made punishable by two years imprisonment. It was as though a narrow-minded English administration should set itself to obliterate all traces of Scottish, Welsh, and Irish national feeling, or as though the government of India should ignore the existence of all save one race and language in our great dependency. In comparison with the government of Magyarland, the government of Austria was a model of tolerance. In Austria, Poles and Ruthenes, Czechs, Germans, Italians, Serbo-Croatians, and Slovenes were entitled to the public use of their own languages and enjoyed various degrees of provincial self-government. 
The Austrian side of every Austro-Hungarian banknote bore an indication of its value in every language of the empire, whereas the Hungarian side was printed in Magyar alone. This was done in order to foster the belief that Hungary was entirely Magyar. In reality, Hungary is as polyglot as Austria. Exact statistics are not obtainable, since the Magyar census returns have long been deliberately falsified for Magyar state reasons, roughly speaking. It may, however, be said that, in Hungary proper, i.e. exclusive of Croatia-Slavonia, where the population is almost entirely Serbo-Croatian, there are perhaps 8.500.000 Magyars, including nearly 1.000.000 professing and a large number of baptized Jews. Against this total there are more than 2.000.000 Germans, including the numerous colonies on the Austrian border, the Swabians of the South, and the Saxons of Transylvania, more than 2.000.000 Slovaks who inhabit chiefly the northwestern counties, between 3 and 4 million Romanes, living between the Vice and the Eastern Carpathians, some 500.000 Ruthenes, or Little Russians, who inhabit the northeastern counties, some 600.000 Serbs and Croats in the central southern counties, 100.000 Slovenes along the borders of Styria and Carinthia, and some 200.000 other non-Magyars including about 90.000 gypsies, who speak a language of their own, taking the population of Hungary proper at area code 18000000. The Magyars are thus in a minority, which becomes more marked when Croatia-Slavonia with its population of 2.600.000 southern Slavs is added. It would have been possible for the Magyars, after the restoration of the Hungarian constitution under the dual settlement of 1867, to have built up a strong and elastic and politely based on the recognition of race individualities and equality of political rights for all. The non-Magyars would have accepted Magyar leadership the more readily in that they had been dragooned and oppressed by Austria during the period of reaction after 1849 as ruthlessly as the Magyars themselves. Dikendio Itvois, who were the last prominent Magyar public men with a Hungarian, as distinguished from a narrowly Magyar, conception of the future of their country pleaded indeed for fair treatment of the non-Magyars, and trusted to the attractive force of the strong Magyar nucleus to settle automatically the question of precedence in the state. But in 1875, when Coloman Tissa, the father of Count Stephen Tissa, took office, these wise counsels were finally and definitely rejected in favor of what Darren Bamfi afterward defined as, national chauvinism. Magyar's Otion became the watchword of the state and persecution its means of action. Coloman Tissa concluded with the monarch a tacit pact under which the Magyar government was to be left free to deal as it pleased with the non-Magyars as long as it supplied without wincing the recruits and the money required for the joint army. The Magyar parliament became almost exclusively representative of the Magyar minority of the people. Out of the 413 constituencies of Hungary proper more than 400 were compelled, by pressure, bribery, and gerrymandering, to return Magyar or Jewish deputies. The press and the banks fell entirely into Jewish hands, and the Magyarized Jews became the most vociferous of the national Chauvinists. Nothing like it has been seen before or since save the Turkish Revolution of 1908, when the young Turks, under Jewish influence, broke away from the relatively tolerant methods of the old regime and adopted the system of forcible Turkification that led to the Albanian insurrections of 1910-12. 
to the formation of the Balkan League, and to the overthrow of Turkey in Europe. The bitter fruits of the policy of Magyari Zapion are now ripening. The oppressed Rumains look not toward Austria, as in the old days when their great bishop Siagana made them a staunch prop of the Habsburg dynasty, but across the Carpathians to Bucharest, the Serbo-Croatians of Hungary, Croatia-Slavonia, and Dalmatia, whose economic and political development the Magyars have deliberately hampered, turn their eyes no longer, as in the days of Jelicic, toward Vienna, but await wistfully the coming of the Serbian liberators, the Ruthenes of the northeast hear the tramp of the Russian armies, the Slovaks of the northwest watch with dull expectancy for the moment when, united with their Slovak kinsmen of Moravia and their cousins, the Czechs of Bohemia, they shall form part of an autonomous Slav province stretching from the Elba to the Danube, for the Magyars, who had thrown to the winds the wisdom of the wisest men, fate may reserve the possession of the fertile and well-watered central Hungarian plain, there they may thrive in modesty and rue at their leisure the folly of having sacrificed their chance of national greatness to the vain pursuit of the Magyar state idea, under the demoralizing influence of Austro-German imperialism. The watchers of the Tiro 80 by Harry Lyman K.O.P.M.A. and Wirilium's towers once rose and stretched her plain. What forms, beneath the late moon's doubtful beam, half-living, half of moonlit vapor, seem, surely here stand apart the kinly twain. Here Ajax looms, and Hector grasps the rein. Here Helen's fatal beauty darts a gleam, and Romaki's love here shines o'er death supreme. To them, while wave-borne thunders roll amain from Samos unto Ida, Calcas, Southeaster of all that shall be, speaks, not the world's end is this, but end of our old world of strife, which, lasting until now, shall perish here, henceforth shall men strive but as friend and friend out of this death to rear a new world's life. The union of Central Europe and argument in favor of a union of the states now allied with Germany by Franz Schwanlicht Professor Franz Schwanlicht, author of the following article, is director of the criminal law seminar of the University of Berlin and is regarded as one of the leading experts on criminal law in Germany. The article was published in the New Badischelands Zeitung of Mannheim, and evoked bitter criticism from many imperialistic quarters in the German press. When new directions of development are first taken in history, it usually requires the lapse of several decades.